Wee! It's Friday, y'all. It is Friday. Happy Friday to you. It's the end of another good week. Isn't God good? Uh, and the end of another good week in the Word. We uh, are in 1 Timothy, today chapter 4, going verse by verse. Uh, this is Tim with Tim. I love you guys so much. Thank you for being with me. Thank you to those of you who are with me live right now. Uh, at 10 o'clock, um, appreciate you more than anything. The fact that you have worked this into your daily routine. I know that some of you uh, don't miss, and uh, and I appreciate that so much. Uh, I know it's not about me, it's about the Word. You're as committed to the Word as I am, but I just really enjoy the fact that we can do this together. I remind you, I'm in my office at the church, and I'm talking to my phone. <laughs> I'm looking at my phone. I'm, I'm, I'm by myself. And so when I finally, you know, talk to you or, or you interact with me, I realize that, you know, genuinely I'm talking to actual people and not just to uh, to a phone on a pole, <laughs> which is what it looks like to me. But anyway, I love you guys. Let's talk about chapter four. I, I really do. I enjoy this chapter a lot. Chapter three of First Timothy flows right into chapter four. So at the end of chapter three, we had this sort of a glorious hymn, sort of a... Uh, uh, a summation of the gospel in poetic form. Christ was revealed in human body, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, announced to the nations, believed in throughout the world, and taken to heaven in glory. It's about Christ, right? But chapter 4 begins, now, however, the Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, some will turn away from the true faith. Now, we don't know exactly what Paul means by the Holy Spirit tells us clearly. That's not really a way that Paul typically refers to an Old Testament passage. Uh, it's most likely a reference to something that has come out through a prophecy or something in the church, in, in the early church, that Paul and Timothy would both be familiar with. I, I'm not sure. But the point is, Paul is trying to say, we were told, the Holy Spirit warned us about this. We knew this was coming. Uh, and when he talks about the last times, I just remind you, that means like today. I mean, for Paul today, the early church believed that, uh, that, that the death of Jesus, the coming of the Holy Spirit, that that in itself inaugurated the last days. And so we're living in the last days. Paul believed that he was living in the last days. And so when he says in these last times, he's talking about now. It's happening now uh, because the Spirit said that it would. Some will turn away from the true faith. So again, I remind you, chapter 3 ended with this glorious poetic description of the true faith. And now chapter 4 says, yeah, but however, some people are going to leave the true faith. Uh, they're going to be led astray by people who are liars, hypocrites. When Paul says they're liars, he doesn't necessarily mean that they intentionally lie. Some of them may, but the point is they're not telling the truth. They have forsaken the truth of the gospel, so what they're saying is a lie whether they know it's a lie or not. Paul also goes all the way to say that the teaching comes from demons, which is, I mean, it's. I guess it's the... Gosh, it is the strongest judgment you can possibly make against someone's beliefs. But he says that this, uh, these teachings come from demons. These people are hypocrites and liars, and their consciences are seared. Uh, let me talk about that a second. Uh, I don't think I've mentioned it, but one of the things I'm kind of fascinated with in the book of 1 Timothy is the theme or the recurrence of that word conscience. I encourage you, when we're done here, go back and look through uh, all the references just in these you know, four short chapters we've already read. Look at all the references to where Paul talks about the conscience. You know, he starts out 
in, in chapter 1, verse 5, when he says, The purpose of my instruction is that all believers will be filled with love that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience, you know. And, and he just goes on. He continues to talk about the conscience. Verse 19, cling to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. One of the patterns you'll see is that Paul almost always, if not always, modifies that word conscience. So it's never just conscience. It's either a clear, a pure conscience, or in this case, uh, in chapter 4, verse 2, their consciences are seared. It's a dead conscience or a seared conscience. So I, I think what we have to recognize as Christians is that uh, the conscience is not a reliable moral guide in itself. You know, so despite what Disney teaches us or what Jiminy Cricket told Pinocchio, wasn't it? Uh, Let your conscience be your guide. That sounds like the warmest, best advice ever. The problem is your conscience isn't reliable. The Holy Spirit must be your guide. And if you're a believer and you're in the Word and you are walking in the Spirit, your conscience will be informed by the Holy Spirit. So maybe in that case, as Paul would say, you'll have a clear conscience that you might be able to rely upon. But if your conscience is only informed by a pagan culture or your pagan you know, background or your sinful past, then you can't rely on your conscience. You know what I'm saying? And for Paul, the conscience isn't just like feeling bad for like my conscience is bothering me for something I did. Paul's really thinking about the conscience as what guides you forward in making moral decisions. It's kind of like you, you, you'll make decisions based on what your conscience will let you you do and some people obviously don't have a conscience that bothers them at all you know some people don't feel guilty for nothing so if you tell them to let their conscience be their guide you know that you know they're going to rob you blind you know they're going they're going to do whatever they want to do because their conscience is not a reliable guide so here Paul says man these people their consciences are seared uh, the word there is literally like with a hot iron or, or we might use the word cauterized Interestingly, some scholars read this verse and they think that it's more of a, 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 a reference to like branding, like branding a cattle, you know, with a hot iron. And so in that sense, their consciences are branded, marked by the devil. So they already belong to the devil's, you know, uh, the devil's flock, the, the, the devil's herd. He's been, they've been branded by the devil. Their consciences are, are seared by him. I don't know. I, I tend to go more the, the sense that it's cauterized. It, it's not reliable. It's burnt off now, and it's deadened. Um, at any rate, it's not a reliable guide. You can't just let your conscience be your guide. Um, these first verses, verses 1 through 5, give us, in some ways, the, the fullest, and it's not very full, because Paul and Timothy assume each other knows things, so they don't spell it out in the letter. But we get a little bit of a, of a sense of, of what the errors are about. What's the nature of the errors that the false teachers are, are, are promulgating? And we find out two things here. Um, they're, they're sort of forbidding marriage. Like they think that marriage is inappropriate for Christians or somehow or another to be avoided. And then also something to do with food, avoiding foods. Paul frequently in his writings confronts people who eat only vegetables or who, who forbid eating meat. So it's possible that uh, forbidding certain foods are, is perhaps related to, to the eating of meat. But one, one thing I notice here is if Paul is coming up again, if he's opposing 
false teachers, and among other errors, they are teaching that Christians should not get married. It's probably one of the reasons why there's so much emphasis on marriage in 1 Timothy. Now, why would anybody forbid marriage? Well, simply, uh, it's, it's, it's what scholars would call an over-realized eschatology. In other words, they are a little overtaken with the idea that the second coming is, is so close. And so the idea is, man, should I even bother getting married because Jesus is going to come back so soon? You know, by the time, you know, we, you know, we register on Amazon and everybody starts sending us wedding gifts and Jesus could come back and then what a waste, you know, or, you know, so I even, you know, so I even bother. It's that idea that Jesus coming is so close, maybe we shouldn't live normal lives. And Paul always sort of strikes a middle ground there. Of course, he's coming back soon, but in the meantime, you know, live a godly life. And that involves, you know, a full life in, in every sense. If you, uh, are unable to live in sexual purity, then you need to get married. And, and, and Paul would definitely say that. But again, I remind you, if the opposing false teachers are, are spreading this you know, false idea that Christians shouldn't get married, that's going to be one of the reasons why Paul says, I, I'd like church leaders to be husbands, you know, husbands with a wife. And and that in our next chapter, chapter five, you know, there's you know a young widow who loses her husband. You know, she probably ought to get married because you know, she got a lot of living to do, and we don't want her to you know b- become a floozy. You know, so she probably ought to get married. So you notice that Paul leans every chance he gets toward encouraging you know godly people to get married uh, because obviously the false teachers are trying to make them think there's something wrong with getting married. Now, verses 6 to 16 give Timothy just practical advice on his role in being a leader, an example, but also the one who's going to clean up the mess in in Ephesus. I'm out of time, but let me say a couple of things. First off, that famous verse, you know, let no man despise thy youth. Uh, don't let anyone think less of you because you're young. Verse 12, Paul says. You know, I think that's really, really good advice. However, I think in our day, in our culture, it, it's it's been reversed. In other words, you're much more likely to be looked down on because you're old. I, I'm just saying that. I have been young, I now I'm old, and I can tell you uh, that we have a, a, a real preference for youth in the church and, and, and in leadership. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's, it's, it's one of the ways in which the, the cultural situation is reversed. And I think Paul's word here is the same. Don't let anybody look down on you because of how old you are, you know, or how young you are. Instead, be an example. In other words, don't let anybody look down on you for any reason, but not for your age. Instead, make them look up to you because of your godly example. And, and, and I love that. In other words, being too young, being too old, that's not an excuse for nothing. You just live for Jesus and be a good example and let people look up to you. You know, you know what I'm saying? And, and, I, and I think that's quite, quite important. Be an example to all believers of what you say and the way you live in your love, your faith, and your purity. Again, Timothy, as a young single man, Paul, you know, every chance he gets, you know, you know, pumps that point there about, you know, staying sexually pure. Until I get there, focus on the scriptures to the church, encouraging the believers and teaching them. So again, Paul's giving practical advice to a young leader who is there trying to establish a pattern and uh, and and a foundation of good leadership in the church at Ephesus. We'll pick up right here on Monday morning, chapter five, verses one to twenty-five. This is an interesting passage. It's rarely talked about, hardly ever preached on. Uh, it's advice of what what to do about the the older ladies in the church. What would our church do without the older ladies, right? 
Paul talks about how to minister to them well. So that's chapter 5, 1 Timothy chapter 5, 1 to 25 for Monday. Uh, if you don't have a church home, uh, Woodburn Baptist Church would welcome you this coming Sunday, 8, 9, 30, and 11. It's a communion Sunday. It's a Lord's Supper Sunday. I love the Lord's Supper all the time, but I especially love it at Christmas. So Sunday is our uh, first Sunday of Advent and our opportunity to uh, observe a, a Christmas communion together, and I invite you to be a part of that. I'm starting a new sermon series entitled Carols. All, all the Christmas carols preach the gospel, and so Sunday I'm preaching uh, from the carol that came up on the midnight clear and talking about the story of John the Baptizer. So anyway, 8, 9, 30, 11, we'd love to see you. If we don't, I will see you right here, Lord willing, 10 o'clock on Monday morning for Tim with Tim. I love you guys. Have a good Friday. Have a good weekend.